I was uh, joking before the service with a couple of guys uh, out in the uh, foyer that um, about entrance music. As I'm walking up here, there should be something to kind of pump me up and prepare me to preach. Um, we went through a couple of suggestions, but uh, in truth, it's a song like In Christ Alone, proclaiming the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ that really does prepare my heart to preach. Um, on January 1st, we took the first of a, a long uh, journey with the Apostle Paul to the very heart of the gospel. We're spending 2012 going through the book of Romans and really learning what it really means to be centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we started that journey through the couple months here, through the first uh, several chapters of Romans, we learned that our journey to understanding the gospel, our journey to coming to a point of understanding life, first goes through a road of darkness. And so we learn early on in the book of Romans that we cannot justify ourselves before God. We cannot earn our own salvation. We can't find our way to heaven on our own. With chilling clarity, Paul proclaims the truth about us. Every single one of us is a rebellious sinner who deserves God's wrath. The light of the gospel is coming, but we first must face the dark reality of sin in our own heart. It's recognition of darkness that makes this season so important in the church calendar. Today is Palm Sunday, as we've already said, the day where we commemorate the, the entry of Jesus as king into Jerusalem in accordance with the prophecies in the Old Testament. But we do well to remember that at the end of the week we celebrate Good Friday and we learn why Jesus did go into the gates of Jerusalem as king. He entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to go to his death. And so the convergence of our place in the book of Romans and our time in the church calendar leads us to pause for a couple weeks here. We're going to pause for three weeks and, and really focus on the pivotal events of Jesus' ministry, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and his ascension. So that's what we're doing the next three weeks here. Specifically, we need to ask why these three things are so important. So why is the death of Jesus good news? Why is the resurrection of Jesus good news? Why is the ascension of Jesus good news? We take up the first of those questions this morning. Please pray with me as we move to the text. Father, our desire is to know you, to know the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And apart from your revelation of that truth, we can never actually know it. And so we pray this morning that you would clarify our hearts and clarify our minds so that we can know the truth. Speak your word to us this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Most of us are very familiar with the cross as a symbol. I mean, even if we haven't grown up in the church, crosses are, are all over the place in our, in our culture, in our society. I mean, we see we have a cross up in the front of our sanctuary. If, if you go to uh, the cemetery, you'll see crosses marking gravestones. If you drive along the highway, you'll see crosses commemorating the life of those who have died. Some of us even have little gold or silver crosses as jewelry that we wear. We're used to seeing the cross. It doesn't surprise us or shock us. 
But I think sometimes our familiarity with the cross can make us forget how shocking it really is that representations of a Roman cross are everywhere around us. And remember, in ancient Rome, the cross was a symbol of disgrace and shame. We would do well to remember that the cross is a means of execution. The cross in ancient Rome was like a guillotine in in France during the Revolution. The cross in Rome was like a noose earlier in our country's history. The cross in Rome was like an electric chair more recently. We can hardly imagine someone wearing one of those things as jewelry, let alone putting it up in a place of worship, in a sanctuary. So what makes the difference? How does the most brutal form of execution in the Roman Empire, a symbol of shame and defeat, how does that morph into a symbol that's appropriate for a place of worship? The answer, of course, is that what has transformed the Roman cross into a symbol of the Christian faith is the death of Jesus. But that doesn't completely solve the issue for us. This is still talking about death. And so this morning I want to explore with you, why is this actually good news? Why is the death of Jesus actually good news for us? We're going to look at two key passages to teach us the truth of Jesus' death, one from the New Testament and one from the Old Testament. Why is the death of Jesus good news? First, a passage from the New Testament. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible, this is found on page 1,128. So 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 25 is the first passage we're looking at. Let's start with the first verse. Verse 18, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So right off the bat, this is what Paul's saying, that the message of the cross, that the message that Jesus died is a divisive truth. To one group, it is complete foolishness, and to the other group, it is the power of God. Why is this so? Let's follow his argument. Verses 19 to 23. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. See, it's true in verse 18 that the message of the cross divides us into two groups because It runs counter to our understanding of how things should be. When it comes to human understanding and human knowledge, the death of Jesus simply does not make sense. The wise person, the scholar, the philosopher, if they're being honest, will see the death of Jesus Christ and scoff at it. That is foolishness. Even Jews, even those who know the power of God from the Old Testament, 
Even Jews cannot handle the cross. Jews want a sign of God's deliverance. They have heard that he is a delivering God, that he is a saving God, and so they want a sign of power. And when they see the cross, they know that this is not power. Greeks, too, cannot accept the cross. They have a whole pantheon of gods, but this is a story that is simply ridiculous. No God would ever act like this. No God would ever take on a human body and suffer and die at the hands of humans. It's a story that does not make sense. Greeks want wisdom, and this is truly not wisdom. And so some of us, too, find the death of Jesus difficult. It does seem foolish to us. And we look around the world, we see suffering and disease and death, and we hear of God's promises of wholeness and healing and life. And then we look at the cross and it just doesn't make sense. I mean, we have suffering and death. We don't want to see more suffering and death. We want to see life and power and healing. This is what we want to see. Couldn't Jesus have simply gone through the world and and healed everyone and it would have just been enough at that? We want action and the death of Jesus looks like inaction. We want to fight evil and it looks like Jesus is not fighting. He's dying. And yet this is our message. Verses 23 to 25. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. To those God has called, the death of Jesus is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. What from our human perspective is is foolish is seen for its true beauty, its true power. But we can't pass too quickly over the foolishness of it. Before God opens our eyes, all of us are going to think the cross is foolishness. We're going to think the death of Jesus is not something that should have happened. What makes it so hard for us is that we deeply trust our intuition and our perception. We think that we have a good grasp of reality. We understand how things are. We know what is wise. We know what is foolish. We can tell the difference between these things. We trust our ability to know. We may not know everything, but we know what we know, so to speak. But what if we are less acute at knowing than we think we are? I've got a fun little uh, experiment here that I want to show you. The monkey business illusion. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. And that's the monkey business illusion.
Learn more about this illusion and the original gorilla experiment at theinvisiblegorilla.com. When I first saw that, I hadn't heard a thing about it, and so I was diligently counting the passes. And I was proud of myself for getting the right answer, but turns out I was one of the 50% that did not actually see the gorilla there in plain sight before. And so half of you can feel good about yourselves if you've not seen this before and you saw the gorilla, and the other half of you can realize that in truth, you do not perceive as well as you think you do. You can brag about it if you did see the gorilla later. Unless you didn't catch the curtain color and the other player leaving. See, the truth is that we are humans, and because we are humans, we have an, a limited ability to perceive and to know. Even things that are right before our eyes that we think, of course I'm going to grasp that kind of a thing. Even that, we are limited in our ability to see and understand. Our, our minds, as as incredibly uh, intricate and ornate as our minds work, we don't catch everything. Our wisdom and our knowledge are, are imperfect, and it takes a study like this to expose our limits. And Paul is saying the same thing about the death of Jesus. The cross exposes our foolishness. So you think you can tell the difference between wisdom and foolishness, but, but you are wrong. See, the cross seems foolish to us deep down. If we're really honest, the cross does seem foolish to us. But in truth, we are the ones who are foolish. And so our first lesson toward understanding the good news of the cross is that we must be humbled. We come to the story of Jesus with our own idea of how God should act in the world. We come to the story of Jesus with our own idea of what wisdom really looks like. And we come to the story of Jesus with our own idea of how God should deliver us. And yet God's truth undoes all of that because he chooses the way of weakness and suffering and the death of his own son. Now, if you've been in church for a long time, you probably think you are well beyond this. You think, okay, yeah, I can count the passes correctly. I can see the grill. I can notice the curtain. I know all these things. I know that the cross is not foolishness. I know that this is my salvation. But I suspect that we are more prone to think of the way of cross as foolishness than we think we are. Of course, we'd never say it out loud. But in how we live our lives, we expose a deep unwillingness to take the path of weakness and suffering. Martin Luther differentiated between what he called a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. He says that our starting point as humans is the theology of glory. We don't like the message of the cross when it comes to how we live our lives. We prefer a theology of the glory because it prefers works, activity to suffering. It prefers glory to the cross. It prefers strength to weakness, wisdom to folly. See, there's a draw to this because it, it looks like we're doing something. It looks like something's really being accomplished here. There's, there's action, there's, there's works, there's glory, there's strength, there's wisdom here. This is something we can really get behind. But the way of the cross is harder. The fact that evangelical Christians continue to be drawn to a theology of glory rather than a theology of the cross is seen most conspicuously, I believe, in our desire for political power. In the March edition of Christianity Today, editor David Neff decries a closed-door meeting of 150 evangelical leaders. They gather together in a room 
and were deciding on who to put their collective weight behind in the Republican uh, primaries. Basically, they wanted to make evangelical voters a block, a voting block. Why? Well, because this is how politics works. This is power politics. This is a form of gaining power. In Neff's terms, they were playing kingmaker, power broker. And this is hard because this is an entrenched part of evangelical culture. But I suspect that we probably would have tried to make Jesus king if we were walking the earth in his day. And of course, we want godly, wise leaders. Yes, we we pray for the health of our country. But when our political action takes the root of power, it betrays a lack of willingness to follow the path of our Savior. Jesus chose the way of the cross over the way of the crown. And I suspect that many of us deep down believe that that was a foolish decision. In our hearts, in the way we live our lives, we show that that's actually foolishness to us. But in truth, it is the wisdom of God. Until the cross moves us to the way of weakness and suffering in rejection of power politics, we show that the cross remains foolishness in our estimation. And so the cross exposes our weakness. You and I are fatally attracted to human power. And God chooses the cross. But now we have a deeper question. How is the cross better? How is the way of weakness and suffering actually better? How is the death of Jesus the better path than the crown? And for this, we turn to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53 If you're using the Pew Bibles, this is found on page 731, Isaiah chapter 53. A very brief background here. Isaiah is a prophet writing at a time when Israel is unstable. And the passage that we're looking at here is part of a section that's talking about uh, to a a group that will be exiled in the future. And he's giving them a message of hope. And this message of hope is centered on one who is called the servant of the Lord. Now, as we go forward, I'm going to equate the servant of the Lord here with Jesus. And that's not without objection. Some scholars, and in particular Jewish um, religious Jews, would say that this is not, in fact, Jesus. This is not talking about the Messiah. It's, they have maybe a, a prophet or, uh, or perhaps even the, the nation of Israel as a whole, they would say, is the servant of the Lord. Um, but the, the, the witness of the New Testament, and, which is explicit in, in Acts chapter 8, is that Jesus is this suffering servant. So if you have questions about that, we can talk afterward. But here's what Isaiah is going to tell us about the servant. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. In other words, if Isaiah did not tell us that this is, in fact, the arm of the Lord, the power of God at work, we never would have guessed it. I mean, we hear that God is going to deliver, and immediately we think power. 
A deliverer comes and conquers. He is strong and forceful. And because of this, we are drawn to that power. We are attracted to powerful deliverers. But the deliverer that God sends is not what was expected. Rather than being strong and forceful, this one comes like a tender plant that's just beginning to peek out of the dry ground. And we think that's not something that is attractive. We, we look at this person, we don't see power, we see weakness, and therefore we reject this person. This is not the deliverer that God has sent. And so that's what we first learn in Isaiah 53. The first thing we learn is that we reject this deliverer, we reject the servant. As in 1 Corinthians, we don't see God's power when we see the ministry of this deliverer. What we see is weakness. And then Isaiah explains why we see weakness. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So yes, there is weakness here. But where does that weakness come from? Yes, there is suffering here. But where is that suffering coming from? In a remarkable turn, Isaiah is telling us that the weakness and the pain and the suffering that we see in that servant are coming from us. The very things for which we are rejecting this one as weak, as not the deliverer, are things that he took up from us. This servant suffers for us. And now we begin to see how the death of Jesus is actually good news for us. I want you to stop and and look at that passage with me for a moment. Do Do you see where you fit into this passage? Our pain, our suffering, our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins. Do you have these in your life? Do you have pain and suffering in your life? Do you have the consequences of sin that you're living with? Like a quick mental list of those things. When you hear these things, does that sound like your life? I know that many of you are right there in that battle. You are going through intense struggles in your lives. I've heard some of the stories. If you feel the weight of those burdens, the answer is here. Jesus took up the burden that's on your shoulders. The cross of Jesus Christ is Jesus taking up your burden, suffering for you, taking your pain on his shoulders, taking your sin on his shoulders. Jesus looks so weak dying on a cross because he was carrying your weakness. But look again, this isn't needless suffering. Look at the result of this. He is bringing us peace. He is healing us. The suffering and pain and weight of sin in your life are answered. 
You are not left to shoulder the burden alone. The suffering and death of Jesus are to make you whole and to make me whole. By his wounds we are healed. There is actual healing here. And this isn't just a theory. It's tempting for us to just kind of throw this off and think, okay, that sounds fine, but where does it actually fit in real life? See, this isn't just a theory. This is real life. This doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily be free of suffering. But it does mean that the death of Jesus reshapes reality. And it brings a deeper wholeness to our lives than we could have ever imagined. Here's how I know that this is more than just a theory. A 17-year-old girl dove into the water one day and her life was forever changed. She became paralyzed from the neck down, a quadriplegic. We might think this means that her life is over. A 17-year-old girl, young and vibrant, and suddenly she can't move anything below her neck. She can't move her hands. She can't move her arms. She can't move her legs. Think about her position as a teenager. You'd think this is the worst possible scenario. I'd rather, I would have rather died than live as a quadriplegic. And there's no denying that this is incredibly difficult. Four decades later, she said this. When I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, 45 years of paralysis. I just don't know if I can face another day of having someone come into my bedroom Give me a bed bath or do my toiletry routines. Get me dressed. Sit me up in a wheelchair. Push me to the bathroom. Brush my teeth. Feed me breakfast. Oh, the routine seems so overwhelming. And sometimes I just feel like turning my head on the pillow and closing my eyes on the day. But even through paralysis, this woman, Johnny Erickson Tata, has found truth. She spoke at my graduation. This is what she said. If I have any secret to being content, it is that I recognize that my weakness is an asset because it drives me into the arms of Jesus. I love Jesus. He is the reason I get up in the morning. He is the reason I get energized for the day. She is still a quadriplegic, but there is totally new meaning in her life. Our weakness and our suffering are not the final word. The cross, the suffering of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ reshapes reality. And it makes us whole in a way that we could never understand before. Yes, this woman is living in a broken body, living with a broken reality day in and day out for 45 years. And yet she knows her Savior. And therefore she is whole. And consider the great cost of what has accomplished this. Isaiah 53, beginning again in verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Simply put, God's Son bears the sin of the world. He was oppressed and beaten. He was considered a criminal. Went to his death as a criminal, even though he was completely innocent. He had no justice, and yet he did it willingly. He did this for you. And perhaps the greatest shock of all is that this was God's plan. Verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The suffering of God's servant, the suffering of God's son was God's plan. This is not an accident of history. The suffering and death of Jesus is what God determined to do because it is the only way for him to bring rebellious sinners back into a reconciled relationship with him. And he was so determined to do it that he would do it at the cost of his own son. That is how much God loves you and that is how much God loves me. This is exactly what has happened. The death of Jesus is not ultimately defeat. It looks like defeat to us because death is our great, our great enemy. And yet death is not the final word. The plan of God is triumph through weakness. Jesus suffers and dies, and that is how God makes us whole. The suffering servant in the end is satisfied because his sacrifice makes sinful people like you and me righteous. By his wounds we are healed. This is what Martin Luther called the happy exchange. Jesus takes our sin away from us. He bears our sin on the cross and he gives us his righteousness. By the cross we are reconciled to God, declared righteous before him. See, the cross exposes the foolishness of our attraction to power because it is the cross, weakness and suffering and death, that accomplishes our salvation. The death of Jesus is God's plan for us, for our salvation. And that is why the death of Jesus is good news for us. Ultimately, the cross teaches us humility And then it leaves us with great hope. See, for those of us who are still attracted to power, the death of Jesus is a striking blow of humility. We are knocked off our pedestal of self-assured thinking and forced to reassess our standards of wisdom and foolishness. 
We don't like the sound of weakness, and yet death is God's plan. And so we learn that we as humans are, are totally bankrupt. We are completely misguided. We are deeply corrupted when it comes to understanding the way that God works in the world. It is through death that God changes reality. More than that, though, the death of Jesus leaves us with great hope. Those who know brokenness can rejoice because God heals us. That is the great reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. By his wounds we are healed. Here is a Savior who has taken up our brokenness and who has brought us healing. The death of Jesus means that you are not forever broken. The death of Jesus means that you are not forever oppressed. The death of Jesus means that you do not have to suffer forever. There is an answer to this. By his wounds, we are healed. Yes, the cross is a sign of defeat. But God uses that sign to bring the greatest victory possible. You and I turn away from the cross and its weakness and its brutality. But God uses the cross to even overcome that rejection of God's plan, to even overcome our rejection of Jesus and to bring us salvation. So the cross is how we know that God has seen the suffering of the world. He has seen the sin that's deeply rooted in our hearts and he has acted to overcome it. Against all of our ideas of what wisdom and power look like, God has acted to overcome our sin and the suffering of the world by the death of his son. The death of Jesus, the very foolishness that we reject, is God's power for our salvation. The death of Jesus brings healing and wholeness to the hurting and broken. So the message this morning is cling to the cross. It is your salvation. It is your life. May God speak that reality deep into our souls, transforming our ideas of power and wisdom according to his plan, according to the cross. Please pray with me. God, you proclaimed years before the birth of Jesus that this servant would suffer and die and that by his wounds we would be healed. Make that truth our everyday reality. We pray this in the name of our Savior, the suffering servant. Amen.